Good morning. Would you please turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. As you get there, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, how we thank you so much for this wonderful and blessed privilege that we have week in and week out to gather together in this place to sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to you to lift up our prayers our supplications, our requests that you allow us to make known to you and to study your word It is for us a tremendous privilege. For as we see in these days and times in which we live, such a, such an animosity towards you, towards the name of Christ, and towards the church, and towards your word. We are still thankful, Lord God, that today we can stand strong and stand confidently in your truth. Anoint us And bless us with your Holy Spirit this day so that, Lord, all that we hear from you will stir our hearts, will strengthen us, will challenge us and cause us, Lord, to do everything that will bring honor and glory to you. And I pray, Father, that we will lay before you all of the things right now, all of the things that hamper us. from appreciating, Lord, the access that you have given to us through the blood of Jesus Christ to come to your throne of grace. We bless you and we praise you for your forgiveness, for your healing, and for your deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. John chapter 2, verse 12 After this, he, speaking of Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. It is not my intention to fill every time gap in the Gospel of John with events recorded in the other three Gospels, but for the purposes of clarity, it is good to do so at times. This is one such time. We know from the synoptic Gospels, of course, if you've been with us any amount of time in our study of the Gospel of John, that synoptic Gospels are the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who cover much of the same materials uh, with each other. But we know from those three Gospels that after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, that he went out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And then Jesus returned to Judea and began to slowly progress toward the region of the Galilee. Now, we've already followed him as as he called his earliest disciples and made his way to be present at a marriage in Cana of Galilee, subsequently to reveal his glory in changing water into wine. But now we see Jesus go from Cana to Capernaum. And it's only one verse here. 
But we were told that they were there not many days, which means they weren't there very long. As, as I was studying and putting all of this uh, together for, for purposes of our studying this passage of Scripture today, Capernaum <clears throat> kind of stuck with me for a reason. Capernaum in the Hebrew still exists today, of course. For those of you that have been to Capernaum, you know this. We know that this city was not his birthplace, uh, the birthplace of Jesus. Neither was it the town in which he had lived as a child and a young man, but it was the city which he chose as a place of residence and the central hub for his ministry. Eventually, the town of Capernaum came to be known as his own city, speaking of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, for example, and he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. This happened, of course, after he had uh, healed a couple of uh, demon-possessed men on the other side by the uh, Nessarenes, you know. And, and so he crossed over to his own city. The city was Capernaum. Now, from all accounts, Jesus wasn't there very much. I mean, if he had a home at all, at this time in his ministry, it was Capernaum. Even still, he more than likely lived with others since he made a statement to a certain scribe who said that he wanted to follow Jesus back in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, when Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. We know of another citizen of Capernaum named Peter, and more than likely Jesus spent most of his time in Peter's home. And even though we see in our text that his mother and his brethren were with him on this journey to Capernaum, and we'll deal with his brethren at another study later on in John, it appears that from this point on, Jesus would be alienated from his family and his hometown of Nazareth. And so he was seldom at home, but if he had a home at all, it was Capernaum. And because of this, Capernaum was one of the most privileged of the cities in the Galilee. Jesus was often appearing in the synagogue in Capernaum. And for those of you who have been to Capernaum with us on our trips to Israel and stood in the excavated uh, synagogue there, I speak confidently of the emotion that overwhelms a person standing in all probability on the very stones where his feet stood. And yet, as blessed as this place was when Jesus lived there and taught there and did his works of power there, nonetheless it was of this city that Jesus would eventually say in Luke chapter 10 verse 15, And thou Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. What an amazing statement Jesus makes. For as privileged as it was for a time, Capernaum would be blotted out of existence. We don't know for sure how or when that happened, but we may speculate at times that it, it could have happened after the, the major revolts against the Roman Empire by the Zealots and, and, uh, and all from, from the time of before the Diaspora in A.D. 70 all the way through uh, possibly about 130 uh, A.D. 
when the Romans were still in, in control of the land there. But in effect, Capernaum died. And eventually in time, it was covered up. Even to the point where people were looking for it, couldn't find it. For centuries, no one really knew where Capernaum stood until it was excavated from under a mound of sand in 1838 by an American uh, archaeologist as well as a Bible scholar whose name was Edward Robinson. And he uh, began the process of, of excavating Capernaum. There were many other digs later on that revealed the synagogue and, and so on and so forth of the city. But I bring all of this up about Capernaum because there's only one verse and we could have just passed on from here. But the more I considered it, the more it came to my my understanding that that this should serve. What what happened to Capernaum should serve as a solemn warning for us today. The Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America especially. Capernaum will serve as a solemn warning for us because as Harry Ironside, one great Bible expositor once stated, the greater our privileges, the greater our responsibility. The greater our privileges, the greater our responsibility. He went on to say this, if God has in loving kindness permitted us to live in a country where Bibles are found on every hand and yet we turn a deaf ear to his proclamation and despise his word, how dreadful it will be someday to face him in the judgment whom we have rejected while on earth. God grant that the lesson of Capernaum may sink deeply into the heart. What a powerful statement. But it brings to mind the question, is this where our nation is today? Is this where our nation is today? Are we on the brink of God's judgment? One of the many contenders for the Republican nomination for president recently stated of his fear that uh, even before this present administration is over, there will be a, a, a very strong criminalization of Christianity. You know, we can't consider that to be some offhanded remark, especially with what we see today happening in, in, in the church across the world, but also in the way the church and Jesus and God and the scriptures and the church and the, and the people of God are being treated today in our own country. A country founded on the foundation of the word of God and the laws of God. Isn't it an incredible thing? And we as the church need to remember this. Before we go on in our, in our study today, we need to remember something. That even though we know that the Lord Jesus is going to come quickly and that, and that certainly we, we may be just seeing, seeing what's happening today prophetically that the Lord is coming soon because of all of the chaos that's taking place now. But no matter what we already know that is going to happen, one thing that we need to be doing as, as the children of Israel were, were called upon to do, and that is to pray for our nation. And to adopt the very prayer that was given, that, that, that was in, in, in essence given to Solomon, the king of Israel. 
by God, that if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 No matter if we were even to know that the Lord Jesus would come tomorrow, should we ever stop praying for our nation? Because God will judge nations for the way they treat not only Him, but His people. Capernaum stands as an example of what happens when God and His Messiah are rejected. Let us also remember Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation. What has happened to the righteousness of a nation? But sin is a reproach to any people. Folks, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must exalt righteousness in our hearts. The righteousness of God and of Christ until the day of Christ. Righteousness exalts a nation. So now as we move on. We're told in our text that Jesus, along with his family and his disciples, remained in Capernaum a few days. But then he went to Jerusalem for the Passover, as we see in verse 13 of our text. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this was uh, Jesus' first Passover after his baptism. After we begin to see the ministry of Jesus' life, this is the first Passover after his baptism. Now, the second Passover is mentioned in Luke chapter 6, verse 1. And the third is mentioned in John chapter 6, verse 4. And there's a fourth, actually, which was the Passover during which he was crucified. And that is found in John chapter 11. And we'll come, of course, back to all of those. But each Jewish man was required to attend three annual festivals in the holy city. They were required to attend the festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And we're going to get into into all of the festivals very shortly. We're going to actually set aside some time to deal with all of the, the festivals of Israel because they're very important to our understanding of Bible prophecy today. But each Jewish man was, was required to attend, to attend these three annual festivals in the holy city, which is, of course, Jerusalem. So here, here Jesus is, is doing exactly what, a, what any good Jewish man does. But then we read in verse 14 of the text, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. So it needs to be pointed out that what was about to happen took place in what is called the Court of the Gentiles, uh, a, a very large kind of open area on, on the south side of the, uh, of the temple proper. And this was where anyone actually could come. There were certain areas that Gentiles could not approach. There were certain areas where women could not approach uh, there in the temple. But the court of the Gentiles, it was a place where anyone could come. Jew, Gentile, men, women. It is interesting that this, by the way, was a sign and a fulfillment of Messiah's coming. That Jesus himself went to the temple. Because we're told in Malachi chapter 3 verse, verse 1, 
It says, Behold, I, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Now, we all know that that's speaking of John the Baptist. But then it goes on to say, And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. That has a near fulfillment in Jesus going to the temple, but there's also a future fulfillment yet to come, which is when Jesus comes again to the temple to set up his, his eternal kingdom. Now, uh, he shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, uh, which I didn't put up there, uh, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So there's, there's a fulfillment then of Jesus coming to the temple. Now, the time of Passover itself was the start of the Jewish religious calendar. And it was a time of remembrance. And it was a time of examination, examination of the heart for the Jewish people. They remembered the deliverance from Egypt and they would look for and remove all of the leaven from their homes as prescribed by God as a sign of holiness. This was part of their their uh, Passover uh, celebration in their homes. By the way, they still do this to this day. It is still done in the very same way they did, that they did it 2,000 years ago. But it was also a time of celebration. They rejoiced in, the, in their deliverer. They rejoiced in the one who set them free from the bondage of Egypt. But first came the sacrifice. First came the sacrifice. Now we're back in Jesus' day. And there were sacrifices still being done there in the temple. And everyone needed an animal for sacrifice to come in to worship God. Now the sacrifice itself was to be without spot and blemish. But let's look at a dilemma. There was a little dilemma here. Uh, the solution of which was that to save some of these people who came from hundreds of miles away to celebrate the Passover there in Jerusalem... To save them another trip back home because they forgot to bring their own animals or maybe they didn't bring enough for their sacrifices for their families or whatever. Or those traveling from longer distances who didn't have the resources to have their own sacrificed animals with them. They could purchase actually, when they, when they got to the court of the Gentiles, they could purchase an unblemished, unspotted animal. And who knows, maybe you would see a sign there in the court of the Gentiles, shop with us, we'll make worship easy for you. Shop with us. Wouldn't everybody want to have easy worship? Now, let me ask you the question. Is worship easy? Is, 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 is there an element of ease in worship? Oh, you know, some of us would say yes. Some of us would say no. What did it take for you to get here this morning at 11 o'clock? Wasn't that easy? A little sacrifice had to be made at times. For some of you, it took others to really encourage you to come here to church today. We won't say who they were. And still others had their clock set early. Alarms early because we were just, we couldn't wait to get here because we were going to worship our Lord and our God. Ease? Not really. But one thing for sure is we didn't let anything get in the way 
of us getting here to worship the Lord. So the dilemma was solved for some with the solution of the opportunity to buy an unspotted animal, if indeed it was unspotted, there at the court of the Gentiles. But there was an abuse. The abuse was that the merchandisers would rip off the people actually with exorbitant prices. But this wasn't the only problem. There was also the issue of money exchange. And you know, when we read that verse, you know, where, where it talks about money changers being there, they were all sitting there, they're selling their goods, and then these guys were money changers. We all would say, oh, evil people. Evil people. Money changers. You hear that word? Oh. Well, well let, let, let's kind of soften that thought for just a moment because those of you that travel out of the country, uh, if, you, if you have to, you, you fly out to a, to, to a foreign country, you get off of, of the place with your dollars, right? You, you get off with dollars, you go to a money exchange place. I mean, those things exist, don't they? At the airports. And uh, others will tell you, well, don't go there because they charge you a little bit more for you to change your money. But that's okay. Let's just think that this is the easiest thing. You get to the airport, you, you take your money to them, and you say, I'd like to change my dollars for, you know, whatever, whatever the currency is in the country you're in. And they say, we'll gladly do it for a price. So there's a little exchange rate there, and then you pay a little bit for them to give you some money. So you don't get quite as much the, the exchange, but you get enough so that you can go out. Now you're in the new country, and you're out buying stuff and buying and buying and buying and buying until you can't buy anymore. But for those who are a little wiser, you have bought until you said, okay, I have to save this money. So you go back to the airport because you're going to go home. And then you go to the exchange place again. And you say, now, can I exchange this for dollars again? And they say, we can do that. And it's going to cost you a little bit. So you never, I mean, now you're taken again. But it's a charge. It's a rate. It's the fee. And then, you know, and they did that. And so you get a little bit less than you really wanted, but... Okay, so you understand it's a business. It's a business. So, here's the dilemma. Not only was there the selling of animals for the sacrifices, but only the temple half shekel was accepted for the temple tax. That's the dilemma. If you wanted to pay the temple tax, you had to pay it with shekels. And a temple shekel at that, and it was a half shekel. Now, most of the people coming from other places were coming with Roman and Greek coins. But these were not accepted for this. But there's a solution. Money was exchanged right there in the temple. You need the temple tax? We can help you. The abuse... Now, the second abuse was that the exchange wasn't the problem, the rate was. It had been recorded, by the way, that sometimes the exchange rate was up to 50% above the face value of the coin being changed. Highway robbery in the court of the Gentiles. They were using God, listen, they were using God and religion and worship as a means for personal gain. Personal gain. And 
Now Jesus comes and he sees this. Now everybody knows this because we know who Jesus is and we know what he can do. He knew this already, didn't he? This wasn't new to him. But he comes in nonetheless and he sees what's happening and he says, it's time to clean house. It's time to clean house. So look at verse 15 of our text. It says, and when he had made a scourge of small cords. Now, a scourge is simply as a whip. But somehow he either bought uh, some material or, or, you know, some rope because a, a scourge was really just made out of rough rope and, and he, and he bound these ropes together. Uh, and they make a really good whip to, to drive out things like sheep and oxen. So primarily that's what it was used for. But notice that it says he made a small scourge or he's made a scourge, I should say, of small cords. He drove them all out of the temple. Speaking of the sellers. <laughs> You know, he, he drove the sheep and the oxen and all of that too, but he drove the, if the, he, he went after those sellers with a whip too. Vamanos. You know, get out of here. And then, and, and then the, the sheep and oxen, and then notice, he poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves. Now I want you to notice, he said unto them that sold doves, doves. Doves were being sold to whom? They were sold to the poorest people who didn't have very much. They couldn't actually sacrifice a lamb or a a goat or anything of that nature, an oxen. All they could afford was a dove. So they were taking advantage of the people that only had the little mites. I I think, you know, in, in some cases those things were worth a sixteenth of a penny. You ever found a penny out on the, in the parking lot? Belongs to the church, so give it back. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's put it in the box. Over there. But have you ever found a, <laughs> you ever found a penny? And we think, you have to collect a whole lot of those just to get a piece of gum. Right? Nowadays, before we, how many of us remember with a penny we could buy gum? Yeah. Us oldies, but goodies. Nowadays, you look at a penny and say, oh man, you got to collect so many just even to, to get the smell of a gum, you know. That's all you get. Can you think of a sixteenth of a penny today? What it would be worth? Remember the widow's mite? Wasn't very much. But Jesus said, she gave all. And they were taking all so that they could take a dove in to sacrifice so uh, the picture here is this. He said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence. In other words, get these things out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And when this happened, his disciples remembered that it was written in the scriptures, of course, written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. So now we see the whip is certainly flying. And Jesus is overturning tables. And what the, the one picture I saw that when, when I was looking at this text and all was the fact that I could just see Jesus rolling up his sleeves. You ever got determined to do something at home and you said, man, I got to roll up my sleeves and I got to get this stuff done. I must have pulled a thousand weeds the other day. But I rolled up my sleeves and I did it. Of course, my legs haven't thanked me ever since. 
But the whip was flying. Jesus had rolled of his sleeve. By the way, this wasn't a manicured Jesus. This was a masculine Jesus. You got that? I'm not ashamed of telling you that. This was a masculine Jesus. By the way, Jesus was a carpenter. He was a, a carpenter, and we've said this many times, a carpenter didn't just work with wood. Wood was just one of the materials that he worked with. A carpenter actually, in Jesus' time, worked with stone. They were, in fact, stonemasons. And you had to carry some of these things around, you know. So, man, when Jesus rolled up his sleeves, everybody looked at him and whoa. Where's the buff cam? I mean, he, he, was, he was not... What some people think today, nice long blonde hair and real sweet and pretty. He was tough, man. All right, so as we're rolling up his sleeves, by the way, I want you to consider something. Isaiah 52 verse 10. Because here it says, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of the, all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Time and again, I have said that when you, whenever you see the right hand of the Lord or the right arm of the Lord, it is speaking directly of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Who sits at the right hand of the throne of God? Jesus. The right arm signifies the Messiah. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations. Who will come and judge the nations, you see? And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. But here's the thing. Many people in churches today want the image of Jesus to be Jesus meek and mild. Well, I won't argue with you about being meek, but you need to understand what meekness is. When it talks about Jesus being lowly and meek, as it does in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When it talks about him being meek, it talks about the nature of humility. It talks about being a servant in the sense that, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And one of the greatest definitions, I believe, for meekness is this, power under control. Power under control. But we want Jesus to be meek and mild. Some people do. But what they make of him, as one commentator stated, is, and I quote, an idol drained of his deity. Listen. An idol drained of his deity, a good-natured God whose great aim is to let us off the hook. Jesus, Jesus meek and mild to some people says, Jesus is tolerant of anything. I mean, it's okay. He loves you all. And eventually you'll all get into heaven. Really? You haven't read the word of God. I think we should point those people who believe that to the scriptures. Don't you want that to happen? I think, I mean, you know, when we see the Word of God, we see something about Jesus and His character and His nature. I mean, it's something we've learned here. And we need to learn more. Take, for example, Mark chapter 3, verse 5. By the way, this took place probably in Capernaum. Where Jesus was, was there and there was a man with a withered hand. And it was the Sabbath and He asked the people that were there. He said, hey, listen, 
uh, would be okay to heal someone, to do good on the Sabbath day. And the people kept their peace. This is the synagogue. This is the day that you read the word of God. And, 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 and you talk about it and you, and, and, and express, you know, what, what, what this passage is saying and all. And Jesus is actually posing the question. What, uh, is it a good, is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? And they held their peace. And this is why it says, and when he had looked around about them with what? Anger. Can y'all see that? Is it too small for anybody in the back? And when he had looked around about on them with anger. You know, I looked that up in the original language and you know what it means? Anger. Yes. He looked at them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored whole as the other. You remember in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus takes his disciples over to Caesarea Philippi. And there he asks them the question, who do men say that I am? And they gave him a number of names. You know, Well, they think you're Elijah or this prophet or that. And then he said, but, but who do you say that I am? Who do, you th- who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, remember, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, listen, Peter, you, you didn't, uh, I mean, that, uh, you, you didn't come up with that. The, the, the Father gave that to you. And he blessed him. And he says, Simon, you know, you, you're, you're, a, you're a little stone. But on the rock of this confession of yours, Petra, I will build my church. Tremendous statement. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it goes on, and, 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 and there's another conversation about the keys of the kingdom, and so on and so forth. Where am I? Matthew 16, 23. Okay. So anyway, from this time it says in verse 21, that Jesus, uh, to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things, and, and then die and be raised again. And Peter took him, and he began to rebuke him. I mean, now Peter had this power because Jesus said, you know, you're the rock, or your confession, and all of that. And he says, you know, he takes Jesus and rebukes Jesus. Can you believe that? And he says to him, be it far from thee, Lord, they shall not, uh, this shall not be unto thee. This isn't, isn't going to happen to you as long as I'm around. And what is it that Jesus said to him? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. See, if Jesus had been meek and mild and, and tolerant of all kinds of sins, he would have said, oh, well, Peter, okay, well, that's all right. I'll, you'll be in charge of my security. And you can start the U.S. Secret Service. Some of you are getting it. No, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God. You know what that means? You are not mindful. You are not regarding the things of God, but of the things of men. But those that be of men. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Matthew 23 is all about Jesus dealing with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And here, here he says to them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto white whited sepulchers or whitewashed sepulchers which indeed appear beautiful outward but are full within or within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness he says you know you parade yourselves around in your robes and all and you act so so solemn and so pious on the outside but inside you're just dead and not only are you dead but you're unclean and eventually, listen to what he says in, in verse 33. He says, you serpents, you generation of vipers. I mean, what does he call them? You know, here Jesus, meek and mild, calls them a bunch of snakes. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Folks, Jesus meant business when dealing with the business of his father's house. The reason why people turn Jesus into that is because they have disregarded the Word of God. Here in just a few verses, we see the righteous indignation of Jesus, but it never comes out of control. That's His meekness. But it's also His power. He has every right to say what he said to the Pharisees and the scribes, to Peter and to the people in the synagogue in Capernaum. Because he is Messiah. The one true righteous anointed one. He meant business when dealing with his with the business of his father's house. Take these things, he said to them. Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. In other words, he said, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now I'm going to take just a moment here to talk about, about an attitude that some people have, you know, with churches nowadays. And I'm not here trying to defend churches because, you know, it's, it's all about what the Lord puts on our hearts to, to make available for you as members of the church here. Many churches have bookstores. Many churches sell Bibles and books and whatnot. Our desire when we are able to do that is, is to give you the best price for something that you don't have to pay too much of, but we want you to have something that's, that's the best. The point, though, is that we don't force you to have to buy anything. If you want to buy something, you can buy it. If you don't, you don't have to. We don't cry. Oh, they didn't buy nothing. You know what's one of the hardest things for me sometimes? Standing up here at this pulpit for two services and smelling chorizo, man. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it drives me crazy, man. But you know what? We have a cafe. We invite you to go and have fellowship after church or before church, you know, breakfast or lunch, you know, whatever. And it's, it, it, the, you should see how hard they work for you to do that. That's an amazing, wonderful ministry. I pray with them every Sunday morning because they, they just bless my heart. You know, just the way that they serve you. But you know what? We don't tell you, go in there and buy a burrito de chorizo con huevo. <laughs> or papas con chorizo, whatever. We don't tell you to do that. You know what? You do it if you want to. Everything that's sold here, whether it's in bookstore or, 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 or cafe, it all goes to ministry. It all goes to ministry. Why do I say that? 
Because you can't use this against the church for that. Because we have not done one thing that they did. We didn't hamper you when you walked through the door to come in here and worship God. We didn't put a barrier before you that you have to do this before you walk into this place to worship the Lord. Do you understand the difference? Okay. That's all I'm going to say about that. So here he acknowledges this temple. Jesus does. He acknowledges this temple as his father's house. That's what he calls it. His father's house. Did you know that toward the end of his ministry, and by the way, going back to Matthew 23, when he speaks to the scribes and Pharisees, do you know that at the end of his ministry, toward the end of his ministry, he calls it their house? Look at, look at verse 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate or empty. Your house. When he began his ministry, he says, this is my father's house. Toward the end of his ministry, he says, your house is left unto you desolate and empty. Here in this passage in John, he calls it a house of merchandise. Later, because there was actually a second cleansing of the temple, he calls it a den of thieves. Look at Matthew 21 verse 13. And he said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. Notice now he calls it my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So now, on one hand, you may be thinking, Jesus, what do you care about what goes on in Herod's temple? In a couple of years, the veil is going to be torn and this whole system is going to be set aside. So why bother dealing with this? Well, there's a very simple reason. And it all comes back to what I just mentioned to you about you coming through those doors. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want anyone to have the impression that God is not accessible. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't want anyone to have the impression that God is not accessible. You see, a marketplace in the court of the Gentiles is all about barriers. It is all about having to buy, having to wait, having to bring enough in order to get something in return. And Jesus didn't want there to be any barrier between God, His Father, and the people who are seeking after Him. No barriers. Jesus, in effect, said that the temple was His Father's. Therefore, it was to be a house of worship for all people. This included the Gentiles as well as the Jews. All are welcome. But here's the dilemma. The dilemma was that uh, they had built a, a number of walls around all of their laws. All 613 laws that they compiled in the sense from the scriptures. But, but they also categorized and, and compressed into these, into these little walls of beliefs and, and, and rabbinical uh, understandings and rabbinical uh, uh, interpretations. But who comes and gives us the proper interpretation? Jesus. You have heard it said, blah, 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 blah. And, but, and then Jesus said, but this is what I say. Who gave us the law? Who wrote the law for Moses on the rock with his finger? Who put the law down for Belshazzar? In, in Babylon, 
with the writing on the wall. Who created the heavens and the earth? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus. But the Lord's anger was directed toward the irreverence. Please listen. The Word is telling us that that the Lord and His anger was directed toward the irreverence of His own people toward His Father in the aspect of true and pure worship. This is why verse 17 points out that the disciples remembered something in the Scriptures. You know, we're told here in that verse that His disciples remembered that it was written that the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Well, you know that that's Psalm 69, verse 9. For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. To understand what zeal means, just listen to this. In other words, Jesus was consumed with a righteous jealousy and love for his Father's house. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up, consumed me. What are we zealous for? What are we zealous for? What are we consumed by? What consumes us? Sad to say, because it, it even happens to people in, in, in the body of Christ today. Illegal and or intoxicating substances. Do these things consume you? You know, those who, are, those who, who do those kind of things, they, they think that they're consuming these things, but the reality is that those things are consuming them. What are we zealous for? What are we consumed by? Some people are consumed by ambition, by greed, by fame, by fortune, by power. Pornography. To what end? To what end? Do we let these things consume us? And not have a zeal for the things of God. Or the things of God's house. In this case. Like Jesus. May zeal for God's house consume us. Like Jesus. May zeal for God's word consume us. And zeal for God's heart. For the hurting. May that consume us. May zeal for God's heart toward the unloving and the unlovely and the lost. May that consume us as believers in Jesus Christ. May that consume all of us. See, what are we zealous for? 
You remember the zealots of Jesus' time? All they were consumed with was getting rid of Rome. Jesus came and he said, yeah, but are you consumed by God himself who can help you in this if you'll surrender to him? If there's something that is consuming you today, don't you know that there's nothing that can get in your way except your own, your own disregard for God? But if you put that aside, he'll listen. And he'll love you. And he'll heal you. And he'll change you. And he'll clean you. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But here's the thing. We used to sing this song that came out of Micah 6 verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Oh, we should sing that song again. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. In churches like ours where we truly respect and love the Word of God, listen, from week in, to week, week in, week out, day in, day out, listen, if we hear the Word of God, He has shown us. The dilemma is if we're not listening and if we're not paying attention. But He has shown us. And this is what burdens my heart about those who disregard the Word of God or, or just pull little scriptures out here and there that sound good and, you know, we'll just focus on these things. No, you've got to under, you have to understand the whole Word of God. You remember what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in, in, in Acts chapter 20 when, when he tells them, listen, I'm, I'm going away here, and I, but I didn't shun to declare unto you the whole counsel of God because one day there are going to be people coming into the church that are ravenous wolves and they're going to try to take everything that you have spiritually that you've been given from the Word of God. Listen, I don't want that to happen to any of you here. So we don't stop giving you what God wants us to give you from the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly. There's something to do. Be just. Love mercy. Not only for toward yourself, but toward others. And walk humbly in meekness with your God. Now, do you know when he showed him this? Listen, you can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. It says, Now Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God? Listen, what does it mean to fear the Lord thy God? This is the issue of worship. What does it mean to fear the Lord? The word fear here is not the word for terror. It is a word for awe and respect and reverence. To fear the Lord your God. To walk in all of His ways. And to love Him. Listen. A lot of times we can do steps. We can take steps. Oh, you know, I'm obligated. I feel duty bound. I got to go to church. I got to go to the church. I got to go to church. Yeah, but do you love the Lord? We can be so caught up with the issue of, of duty that we forget to love the Lord who created us and made us and is the one who we in, in fact serve. To walk in all His ways, to love Him, and to serve. You see, we love Him first. Then we serve Him, because we love Him. To serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. 
What about Proverbs 21, verse 3? It says, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now, justice and judgment for some people, they say, well, isn't that the same thing? Well, yeah, in, a, in a sense, it isn't because the word for justice in the Hebrew is the word for righteousness. So to do righteousness and judgment or justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Some people think all I got to do is sacrifice. And see, that's what had happened. They were so consumed with wanting to be giving sacrifice, but not living in love toward God. Even the great lesson of Saul, the king of Israel, The lesson that came to him from Samuel that said to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, when I do that, that's like you can say something. To obey is better than sacrifice. Yeah. To obey is better than sacrifice. The temple or the church or even the body, your own body. Because if you remember what we were taught by the Apostle Paul, that our bodies are not our own, we belong to Him. In fact, He he calls our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? We all know that, right? We've read that, studied it and all. But if you don't know that, that's what it is. So the temple or the church or even the body can be abused by forgetting what worship is all about. Misusing the facilities and buildings of God's house. And I'm not talking about the physical building here because you know what? The building is just a building. The church is you. You're the church. You're the people of God. You're the building of God. And that can be misused and, and, and forgotten because of worship being forgotten. Ignoring God's holiness and forgetting one's duty to reverence God and worship Him and to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and allowing. By the way, uh, what about allowing non, uh, questionable, non-worshipful activities? Let me, let, me, let me point this out. It's a very strong statement, so you, you know, bear with me here. But I, you know, I get on Facebook and I see this, this, this video. Somebody says, oh, listen, man, this is what happens, you know, when the Holy Spirit really moves on people, you know. So I said, well, I'd like to see what it is. And I press, you know, the button, you know, and the screen comes up. And all of a sudden there's all these people on their knees barking and yelling and screaming in church and running up and down and bouncing around this way. And that went up and I stopped and I just pressed the button. I stopped and I said, that is not the Holy Spirit. I know it's a bold statement. But let's face it, Galatians chapter 5 teaches us about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, we all love those things. How about the last one? Self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Gentleness, goodness, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Listen, I am one who loves to worship God with a passion. As a matter of fact, I was a worship leader before I became a pastor. And you never stop being either one. But there is a difference. There is a difference. 
between being emotional in your worship and allowing emotionalism to take over. We should be emotional in our worship, but we need to take care of being emotionalistic. There is a difference. Let's not go beyond. You see, Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is the word of God. So let's be careful how we define the work of the spirit in the church. So, Jesus consuming zeal fulfilled scripture and demonstrated that he was the Messiah. And the Messiah was bound to be zealous for God's house and to react in anger at such corruption within the temple. And oh, how this should stir our hearts to know God's word on this subject. As a matter of fact, let's look at some of them, some of the verses. Leviticus 19 verse 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths and notice reverence my sanctuary. Reverence my sanctuary. What makes this a sanctuary here is not again the the walls of this building. What makes this a sanctuary is you being here to worship God. And to reverence this sanctuary now because God is here. Where two or more are gathered in his name, we have come to worship him. And that also affects the sanctuary of the heart. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. But notice what he says. I am the Lord. Let's remember that. Let's remember who he is. Secondly, let's look at Habakkuk 2 verse 20. Now you don't have to say it that way. Habakkuk. You know. But that's the way, you know, Hebrew is Habakkuk. Okay. So Habakkuk 2 verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now, are we allowed access to his holy temple today? We are allowed access to his holy temple because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The veil in the temple was rent in two from top to bottom on the day that Jesus died. And we have access to the temple of God. Praise the Lord. Amen. All right. Now, it says, let the earth keep silence before him. In this place today, we have come to worship the Lord. I hope you all have come to worship the Lord. But out there... Nothing the earth says, nothing the world says matters. So keep silence because God is on his throne. And because God's word has been spoken and God's word has been taught. Psalm 89 verse 7, God is greatly to be feared. Again, fear, not in the sense of terror, but well, maybe for some. But fear in the sense of reverence and worship and respect and awe. It is having a high view of God. Listen, we have lost that in the church today. We have lost the simplicity of just simple worship of God by keeping Him in a high place in our lives. We need to have a high view of God and a low view of man. But we've turned it all around. Now it's a matter of what man thinks and what man says. I don't care what man says. I care what God says to you. And I care of how you live for him because he is your God. And he's to greatly be praised in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. 
I mean, this is just the scratching the surface, as it were, of understanding worship and having the access to come and do that. I want you to remember what Jesus said in verse 16 of our text. He said, take these things hence. Now, when you look at that, we need to understand that there is a, there is a, 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 an implied word there. That is the word you. You, you take these things hence. He tells those dove sellers, you take these things out of here. What that is telling us here as we're getting ready to close is that we are to partner with Jesus Christ in the cleansing work. We are to partner with Jesus Christ in the cleansing work. Doesn't the scripture tell us that we are to guard our own hearts? Guard your hearts, guard your minds, guard your eyes, whatever comes in. You know, we have to guard these things. and that, But we do that under the power of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, we're to do it, right? We are to partner with Him in the cleansing work. We are to guard our hearts. And we are to drive out what the Lord reveals in our hearts that doesn't need to be there. You see, too many people struggle with things because they keep saying to the Lord, Oh Lord, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. He says, I will if you'll get up and help me here. It's kind of like a person, you know, who has this closet full of pornography and he says, Oh God, you know, pornography is getting all over. Oh Lord, just get rid of it for me. Get rid of it for me. Well, you know, God will. He'll send a fire down from heaven and he'll, he'll wipe that whole closet out, but then half of your house will go too. Do you understand? It's about time you get up and you go and burn it somewhere. You go and get rid of it. If that's your problem, then you know what? God has given you now the authority over that to go and take it and burn it and get rid of it so that you can walk right and clean with God. Amen? So let me leave you with this because we're going to stop here. We're going to close out chapter 2 next week. We're going to come to the table of communion next week. And I'm going to tie some things with what we just studied with the last part of chapter 2, to communion. And so that's why I split. I wanted to finish the whole chapter today, but I got really caught up in this in this thing. So I'm really thankful for that because I think we needed to hear that. But in any event, let me leave you with this. To help you in your prayer today, about those things that are hampering you from worshiping God. Listen to the psalmist David in, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. By the way, we used to sing this song too. We need to sing this one again too. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Can you mark that in your Bibles today? Let that be your prayer today and this week. Would you do that? Search me, O oh God. You know, when he does, when we ask him to do that, man, the light, that big, huge beam of light just hits us. Because he's searching. But he's wanting us to see. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Will you do that? Anybody? All right. All right, good. I was just a little worried there. (laughs) Join me in a word of prayer as we close now. Father, we thank you for your word that comes alive to us, Lord. 
because of your Holy Spirit that truly wants us to see rightly so that we may do rightly and justly, humbly, honestly, the things that give you all the glory, honor, and praise. Father, I pray that you will anoint and bless us continually with your Holy Spirit as we leave this place today. I ask you, Father God, to have your way, Lord, with each and every person here who is who's just wanting to lay certain things down, Lord God, so that they can certainly continue to walk in a way that blesses you and honors you. I know, Father God, the enemy works so hard to keep us off balance, but Lord, become our foundation, our solid rock foundation. May we stand and stand firmly and stand strongly through the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word in our hearts and minds. Strengthen us, we ask this day. As we look for the day of Jesus Christ, Lord, may we keep our heads up. May we keep looking up and lifting our heads. For our redemption does draw near. And it could happen at any moment, so Lord, may we be ready for Jesus when he comes.